0: So over the last few years... We've worked our way through the books of Habakkuk and Nehemiah and Esther and Philippians and James. Uh, And more recently, I say more recently, the last two and a half or three years, we've been slowly but surely working our way through Luke's gospel. Now, what we're going to be looking at for the rest of this term, surprise, surprise, is the book of Colossians. And I'll tell you, I'm so incredibly excited about this. It is a phenomenal Book. Over the next few months, we're going to be feasting on some of the richest descriptions of Christ in the whole of the Bible. We're going to learn more about the glorious implications for us of being in Christ. We're going to catch a stunning glimpse of His purposes for the church. And we're also going to be deeply provoked and challenged about the implications of believing all of this whether it's for how we relate with one another in the church for our marriages our parenting the way we conduct ourselves in the workplace or at college colossians really has got something to say to every single one of us but before we dive into the text i want to take a bit of a step back and give you a bit of background i want to set the scene for this series. You see, if you don't understand a whole lot about the Roman Empire, you won't fully understand the book of Colossians, and you certainly aren't going to get some of the subversive elements of what Paul is teaching here. And so very quickly, I want to give you a brief snapshot of the Roman Empire. Now, do we have any historians in the room? Any historians? Oh, we have one. So, okay, I'll defer to you at all points from now on. But if the rest of you uh, had any kind of historical background, you'd know that never really in the history of the world have we seen anything quite like the Roman Empire. At its pinnacle, Rome was 4,200 miles across. In other words, it was huge. Pretty much everything from here through to India is Rome. On top of that, they ruled the known world for over 500 years, and because of that longevity, they've impacted the modern world like you wouldn't believe. There are three main ways that the Roman Empire not only transformed the world as they knew it, but kind of transformed even the world as we know it today. If you have any kind of history background, now we've got one in the room, maybe a few others who are too shy to admit it, if you have any kind of history background you're probably going to know the three Romanas. I'm not talking about pizzas and pizza express, I'm talking kind of historically speaking. Anyone know one of the three famous Romanas? What Rome was famous for? Okay, I'll tell you, as you don't know. So this will be part of your education. First one is the Roman roads. Who was thinking of roads but were too shy to say? Okay, a few of you. First Roman road was built in 312 BC. By the time we get to the second century, there were were 50,000 miles of roads in the Roman Empire, all leading directly to to Rome. In fact, some of those roads are still being used to this day, including some of the bridges. So they did it faster and they lasted way longer than we seem to be able to do it nowadays. Now, there are a lot of things that happened with Roman roads in regard to ease of commerce and trade or those kinds of things, but really more than anything else, the impact of the roads was to shrink the world. It created this world in which cultures and ethnicity and food and religion began to mingle and boil together. Basically, what ends up happening is you have this melting pot where multiple cultures collide and they mix together and over time you begin to get something new and fresh emerging. And on one level, Roman roads created that at a massive, massive level kind of did for them what I think the internet has done for us. It's like you can google almost any image you want and see it on your phone straight away. It's like we can get everything and anything at our fingertips right now. It's like the whole world is there in our hands. And it stirred up in a lot of us, this insatiable demand for more and more information and to have it immediately. And if we have to wade through it or work for it, we tend to get frustrated. Just by way of the aside, because I love you and care for you, not really related to anything else I'm going to say, but I'm going to throw this out anyway. If you have a mobile phone, which I'm guessing is pretty much everyone in the room, you do need to unplug for just a bit. I read this survey, this report yesterday, that suggested that the average adult cannot leave their phone untouched for longer than six minutes while they're awake. There's this survey that said that the average number of touches and swipes in the average adult's day is 2617 So maybe you could keep a record each time you touch your phone over the next 24 hours and see if you get close to 2,617. You might be surprised. I know some of you, you don't even hear me right because you're on your phone right now looking like you're taking notes but actually you're texting someone. You need to breathe. You need to stop. You need to unplug. You need to try and break the addiction because that's what it's turning into into. You need to take Sabbath. You need to rest. And you need to hear it from me, it will be okay. The world will survive. Your life will not collapse if you put it down even for a day. But coming back to our subject, all of that was for free. Coming back to our subject... And it's kind of what the Roman roads did for them. The internet has done for us what the Roman roads did for them. It created this unreal amount of access to other cultures and other ideas, to other temples, to other bits of architecture, to new kinds of food and music. It shrank the world. Second thing Rome did is it brought about Pax Romana or Roman peace. Who was thinking of that but you're too embarrassed to say? Okay, we had, you heard the message earlier so that's why you were thinking about it. Uh, no glory there, sorry. Second thing Rome did, it brought about peace. Now, Roman peace is an interesting idea because if you were an enemy of Rome or if you live kind of on the fringe or the outskirts of Rome, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of peace for you. In fact, it would have been an extremely violent period in history for you to be alive in. But inside the confines of the empire, it was, a lot of the time, most of the time, unbelievably peaceful. There were the odd skirmish going on here and there, but Roman rule did a great job of keeping order. The last thing, and the thing that perhaps you can see most residue of nowadays, is Roman law. Anyone think of Roman law? Not even the historian in the room was on the same level of knowledge and experience that I've got on this. So, Roman law. The Roman rulers did a phenomenal job of creating systems, and this goes back to Roman peace, really, because if people feel like they're being heard, and they're being cared for, and they're getting justice, they don't have a tendency to rise up against their government. It's only when they feel that there is no justice, and there is no hope, that they tend to rebel. Now, All that being said, the world up until that point had never seen anything quite like this. The world up until this point was an extremely dark, violent, hostile, horrible place to live. And Rome was able to bring just a chink of light into the midst of it all. Now, all of that sets the scene and helps us understand two of the main problems in Colossians that Paul is going to be addressing. First of all, He's going to get after the Roman Empire just a little bit. He's going to try and whittle away, chip away at the foundation of finding your hope or putting your confidence in Rome. And then secondly, he's also going to address head-on the problem of syncretism. Now, in case you're wondering, here's what syncretism is. The Colossians, they're saying, well, look, we believe in Jesus and we love him. But at the same time, my next-door neighbour is a Jewish mystic, and he prays so much more than I do. And so I'm going to borrow a little bit of his stuff. Jesus, still my main guy, but I'm going to borrow a little bit of Jewish mysticism here. Now, my other neighbor, the other side, he's a druid. And outside of some pretty weird animal stuff that I've seen him do late at night, he really loves... His family. So I'm going to borrow a little bit from this, a little bit from that, and with Jesus still as my main man, I'm going to create this kind of new thing. And Paul is going to undermine and attack that way of thinking and living. Now one of the main reasons that I want us to work through this letter to the Colossians is I believe we desperately need to hear those warnings today. For starters, I think we're in danger of putting our hope in everything our culture stands for and jettisoning our faith in God for a faith in materialism and individualism and earthly success. I also think we're in danger of mixing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the dominant message of political correctness being preached by our culture all around us. And so rather than finding our identity as being in Christ, we're increasingly defining ourselves by our sexuality, by our gender, by our race. And Paul's going to directly address those two issues. But for this week, he's going to be very encouraging to the church in Colossae. And hopefully, as a result, I'll be very encouraging to you as well. So let's get into the passage. We're going to pick it up in Colossians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul starts by introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's next little phrase, verse 3 before the comma, is going to be unbelievably important. We're going to come back to it right at the very end. I'm going to ask you a question. We always thank who? What's the word? We always thank God. That's right. Just keep that in mind. because It's going to be important when we close this thing out. So just hold that thought for now. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now for the rest of the time there are three main points I want to make out of this passage. Number one I want you to see that there is an inseparable link between trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving the church. Secondly I want you to see that this is explained by where your hope is and thirdly that this hope if you get it has the potential at least to change the world. That's where we're going. Number one going to see that there is an inseparable link between trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving the church. One John would put it a bit like this. If a man loves God but hates his brother or sister in the church, he lies and the truth isn't actually in him. It's like there is this inseparable link connection between trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ and loving the wider body of believers. Now there's some debate over who this quote actually belongs to. I think it was Augustine. He says, no man can have God as his father who does not also have the church as his mother. I've always loved that quote. It's like you can't love God and hate the church. You know, nowadays, people are very happy to say, well, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Well, the Bible gently would call you a liar. I'm not saying that we look out at the whole church scene out there and approve of absolutely everything going on, But this idea that you can love God and not have any kind of relationship with other believers is an unbiblical hatching of your imagination. It is not how it works. I know by the show of hands at the beginning that I have a number of people in the room who are perhaps new to Birmingham new to university uh, starting out just working out do i get involved with the church if so which one you are incredibly welcome here i want you to know that church central is a place that will welcome you with open arms and is a place where we believe you will be blessed and you will be a huge blessing as well i want to encourage you to get plugged in to the church as quickly as you can I also want to say, if Church Central isn't your cup of tea, or if you're not quite sure about this church... There are dozens of other exceptional churches in the city. And I'd say to you, if this isn't your church, don't waste time. Go and find another one and put your roots down and be a blessing there and be blessed in that environment. But whatever you do, don't find yourself this time next year still umming and ring about which church you want to get involved with. God's design is for us to live out our faith in relationship with other believers. And the sooner you find a family of believers that you can engage with and be a part of, the better. So great if it's here, great if it's somewhere else, as long as it is somewhere else. And so Paul says here that their faith is public. He's heard of it from this guy called Epaphras. Their faith in Christ Jesus is evident for all to see, and it's particularly worked out in their love for one another. That's my first point very simple. There's an inseparable link between loving the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and loving the church. Secondly, Paul is going to go on and explain why they love one another and love the gospel. And the answer, very helpfully, is in verse 5. It's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So, why do they love their fellow believers? Why do they love the church? Well, that's my second point. They love one another because their hope is firmly rooted in heaven. That is where their hope is. Now, I'm just going to lob this one out there, and I've got to warn you, it's not easy, and it certainly isn't popular. So, brace yourselves. You ready? Well, even if you're not ready, I'm going to say anyway, or else it will drag on slightly. Here you go. You are one day going to die. All of you, you're going to die. It is an inescapable reality. You can be as responsible as you want. You can flood your body with antioxidants. You can avoid certain foods. You can eat, sleep, run, Repeats you can sit in an infrared sauna and detoxify. you can do all of that, but one day you are going to die is coming for all of us. But I think I'm right in saying that probably none of us in this room wants to think about that or even consider it. Everyone in this room probably thinks or at least hopes. They get to live to be 89, 90, 95, 100 years old and die peacefully in their sleep. It's like, it's so way off. We don't even have to think about it. But you cannot avoid it forever. Every one of us, one day, is going to die. And for some of us in this room it may well happen a whole lot sooner than we think. Now, with that said, here's my question. Where have you put your hope? Since that's coming for you, where have you put your hope? I think the bulk of humanity puts their hope in this. I'm a good guy. My question is compared to what? Because if you're a thinker on any level, you've got to admit that is a pretty flawed approach. I mean, do you really believe God is going to give you whatever the afterlife holds on the basis of your personal goodness? I mean, you're telling me you are putting all of your hope in, I take better care of my kids than my neighbor does, or I tell fewer lies than my boss, or I'm more diligent in my work than my colleague. I tell you, the scary part of the Bible isn't that God judges our wickedness, it's that he sees our righteousness. He sees our best bits as the equivalent of filthy rags. Compared to the holiness, the perfection, the purity of God, it's your goodness that falls short. It's not just your wickedness that condemns you, it's your goodness as well. See why? You need the cross so badly. See why Jesus had better have paid the cost for you. The real issue is that you at your best is still never going to be good enough for a holy God. Your goodness will fall short. It will ultimately fail you. And I think if you would honestly just pause and reflect, you would end up figuring that out for yourself. I think the other place people tend to put their hope is trying to just get all that they can in the moment. It's like seize the day. There's one life, live it to the full. Live the great adventure now. You know, once again, I think that kind of idea, it just philosophically falls flat. How many of you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament? It's not a happy read. Uh, A few of you. Okay, Basically, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, look, I'm a king. I am wealthier than you will ever be. I've done all of these things, had all of these experiences that you will never get to have. I've parted so big and so hard, the parties in my house required us to slaughter a hundred cattle just to feed everyone. So I'm not standing here and saying that you haven't thrown a couple of soirees in your day. I'm not saying you you haven't made a good job of pursuing pleasure. I'm just saying, compared to Solomon, your attempts are pretty pitiful. In regards to wealth, in regards to sex, in regards to power, in regards to business, Solomon goes way beyond what any of us are ever going to be able to. And he concludes after he does it all, it doesn't work. It's empty, it's meaningless doesn't satisfy. My question to you over and over again is where is your hope? When it comes to life, eternity, your relationship with God, where are you putting all of your hope? Listen, the Colossians weren't putting their hope in themselves. And they certainly weren't putting it in the pleasures on offer from the world around them. I mean, if their hope was in themselves, they've ended up so proud that they'd have looked down on others, not loved others. If their hope was in squeezing as much pleasure out of the world, their greed would have led to them using people or trampling on people rather than selflessly loving them. The fact that their hope was in heaven freed them to humbly and sacrificially love people in the here and now. A guy called John Piper, one of my favorite preachers, he puts it like this. A strong confidence in the promises of God and a passionate preference for the joy of heaven over the joy of the world frees and liberates a person from worldly self-centeredness, from paralyzing regret and self-pity, from fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. And in the place of all these sins, hope bears the fruit of love. He concludes, it is worldly mindedness that hinders love even when it is disguised by a religious routine on the weekend? Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile or a stranger here on the earth? Where's the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world merely look like baubles and the entertainment of the world is empty and the moral causes of the world are way too small because they have no view to eternity? Where is this person? Well, he's certainly not in bondage to TV watching or eating or sleeping or drinking or partying. He is a free man in a foreign land, and his one burning question is this. How can I maximize my enjoyment of God for all eternity while I live as an exile and a stranger here on this earth? And his answer is always and everywhere the same. By doing the labors of love. Only one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven, doing the works of heaven, and heaven is a world of love and So I say it again with all the conviction that lies within me: the great fountain of love is the powerful, freeing confidence of christian hope it 's a great sermon i 've given you just a pricey version of it. Find out on the internet. John Piper on this passage in Colossians. Here's my question. Do you find it hard to love others? Do you wish you cared more? Do you wish you had stronger relationships with people in the church? Well, the answer is fan the flames of your hope in Christ. Fan the flames of your hope in heaven and as a result you will find love springing up in you for the people around you. That's my second point. Here's my third and final one. This hope, if you get it, and I really hope you do get it, this hope has the potential to change the world. Just notice in verse 7, how Epaphras goes to Ephesus, which was this major city about 12 miles from Colossae, he listens to Paul preaching. As a result, his life is turned upside down. His life is totally and utterly transformed by the gospel. And so he heads back and he begins to preach and teach in his own hometown of Colossae, which is why Paul says, you learnt it, The message of the gospel from this guy called Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then quickly just scan back up to verse 5, where Paul refers to the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, he says, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel, which has come to you in Colossae. Who did this message come to the Colossians through? The guy called Epaphras, that's right. Who did Epaphras hear it from? Paul, well done. Now watch this. Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So here's Paul's point. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is working wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, people are hearing it and believing in it and being transformed by it, and they cannot keep it to themselves, and so it keeps on spreading. Now, just by way of an aside, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the Old Testament is crammed full of rules and regulations on what worship should look like. Yet the New Testament is almost completely silent on the subject. I think there are probably just a couple of chapters in the whole New Testament that say, look, this is how orderly worship should look. The reason being, the New Testament is very much a mission handbook. It plugs into any culture anywhere in the world. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've had the rich privilege of worshipping in churches in Asia and Africa, in the Middle East, in South America, in North America, and wherever I've gone, they've all worshipped the same Jesus with passion while also carrying the distinct, unique flavours of their own culture. The Bible is a mission handbook. It fits into every culture everywhere. Christianity is not a Western religion. God, apart from the fact it was actually birthed in the East, it spreads across every culture. If you don't believe me, you should. Even if that isn't enough for you, why don't you come along to our forward evening on the 16th of October. I've already alluded to our Church Central app. We're very proud of it. Download it. it. Any device you have, you can get the Church Central app. That'll give all the details about things coming up this term. Ford is something we do just once a term where we share news of what's happening. And on our fourth evening, in this very room, on the 16th of October, you'll hear stories of what God is doing right now in the Middle East, in China, as well as closer to home in our own hugely diverse city. This thing works everywhere. And here's my favourite part. One of my favourite things about all of this is that the Christian faith isn't some blind kind of faith where we cross our fingers and touch wood and hope we're right. It is historically informed. You can go back to the beginning, Genesis 12, a first copy being from around about 1400 BC. You've got God saying, I'm going to flood the earth with the glory of my name. It's going to reach every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth. And then you can just step back and watch it play out. You can look down through history and watch it happening. Paul, he's talking about it in the first century. Here we are in 2016, you can still see it happening. Right now, there are Christians worshipping the risen Lord Jesus in China, in Turkey, in Iraq, in Beirut, in Brazil, all over Africa. I mean, it's happening. It's absolutely happening. This hope is changing the world. And then the other thing to remember is that this is our time. But that's all it is. It's like we have this narrow window of opportunity to play our part in God's eternal story. This has been going on long before us. And if Christ continues to delay his return, it will go on long after us. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's going to continue. Our role is to simply and faithfully play our part well. Admittedly, this is a huge challenge. And let's be honest, it can be hugely demoralising at times. But where I personally gain a whole lot of confidence is to look back and see in the past, see in history how the gospel has transformed lives and cultures for centuries, even in some of the deepest, darkest of times. You know, today, I strongly believe that God wants to commission many of you to go with fresh confidence in the gospel. Fresh confidence in the good news about Jesus. With a fresh sense of the part that you personally have to play. And with a whole fresh motivation. Not one of duty or pressure, but one of liberating hope. And I also believe God wants to set some of you free from hoping in things that will just keep letting you down. Please do not put your hope in your own strength, in your own intellect, in your own wisdom, in your own ability to succeed, in your own goodness. And certainly don't put it in the pleasures on offer in the world that never ultimately satisfy I'm praying today that you would receive fresh revelation from God of the eternal hope that's only found in Jesus but as I draw to a close I want to go right back to the top of the passage and end with this one of my favourite parts of Church Central is the large number of sceptics that we tend to draw right now, hiding in this room, maybe even wearing a red T-shirt, I don't know, will be a whole bunch of people who kind of want faith, but they've still got a load of questions, still got a load of doubt going on. There's a part of you that wants to believe, but you just, for whatever reason, can't. And so I wanted to finish by throwing this out to you. Notice that for all the encouragement Paul gives to the Colossians, He doesn't thank or praise them for any of it. He doesn't say, I want to thank you for loving each other so well. I want to praise you for loving the gospel. He doesn't go there. He says, I thank, remember what we said? I thank God. I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I want to point that out to you is because faith isn't something you simply switch on yourself If you can simply muster it up, then it's yours and you can own it and end up pretty proud. But since you can't muster it completely by yourself, since it's not yours to just turn on and off, ultimately you are forced to be dependent on God so that when he chooses to give it or blow on it, the glory ends up all being his. Listen, there is no such thing as an arrogant Christian who genuinely understands biblically what being a Christian really is. Those two things cannot grow in the same dish. It is an impossibility. By grace, you are saved through faith. And even that faith to believe in that grace is given to you by God so that none of you can boast. At the end of the day, faith is given by God. So what does that mean? Well, if you keep coming back and you're not quite sure why, if you find yourself being drawn and you want faith, but you don't know why it won't turn on for you, here's what I'd encourage. Relax. Stop being so frustrated. But at the same time, keep pressing in. This is a place where it's safe for you to bring your questions, for you to express your doubts. Please keep coming and asking those questions. And slowly but surely, just dive a little bit deeper Get more involved in the Christian community. Join one of our midweek life groups where you'll soon see, you'll soon learn that none of us are perfect, that we're all flawed, that we all need the gospel just as much today as the day it first came to us. And then let God ignite faith in you when he wants to. But in the meantime, you press in. Keep asking your questions, keep sharing your doubts because I don't want any of you to just blindly say, well, I believe we're secretly inside you don't. I want you to press in And to pray, to humble yourself before God. To go, God, if you're real, please help me. If you are there, would you please open up my mind, open up my heart. Give me faith, help me to believe. Because I'm feeling pretty frustrated right now. At times I'm angry, I I just don't get it. I I don't know why I find it hard to worship. I mean, I want to worship you, but something in me doesn't let me. Maybe if I'm being honest, I'm frightened of surrendering this area of my life to you. But through it all, keep coming. Don't give up. Don't get frustrated. Be patient. Press in. Confess where you're struggling. Be honest. Ask for faith. Ask for belief. And then allow God to work so that he gets glory and the praise when he does it. And that is how Paul starts his letter to the Colossians. There'll be more of it over the next few weeks and months.